So I've been a, I've been a Christian a long time, <clears throat> and uh, coming up in 47 years. And my dad's uh, been a pastor since I was a young kid, so I grew up in church. Then I became a professional Christian, and uh, when, one of the differences between me and you is that um, like you, have, you go to a real job, and you have to like think. You have things you have to think about and figure out and problem solve and all that. And I sit around most of the time and think about um, God and theology, and I pray a, a lot. And uh, that's my job. And that's I'm being really facetious right now, by the way. Okay, because that is not at all what my life looks like. Did you know that's what you pay me to do? And you're like, you get paid. They pay you to do this. We'll talk about that. So people uh, come up to me and they say things like, uh, Todd, I found, this, uh, I found this verse. What do you think it means? And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Look at this verse over here. I found this one this morning. What do you think it means? I don't know. It's even more confusing. And they're like, you're supposed to know this stuff. You're not helpful at all. I'm like, I've heard this before. And people come to me and they're like, this terrible thing happened to me or this terrible thing happened to someone I love. How could God let that happen? And I'm like, I don't know, but I've I heard a worse one than that. Like, I don't know. And obviously, I'm being a little facetious, but the truth is, I do spend a lot of time thinking about the things that we believe and the things that we teach and the things that we strive to live our lives by. And I read about this stuff, and I write about it as I process uh, things, and it's like I'm always turning over rocks that I never noticed before. And I love digging into things that like we've always believed just to be sure that I'm being intellectually honest and not just repeating the same old thing that we've been consuming and digesting for decades without giving it any honest thought. And I love that. And lately, I've found myself as convinced as I've ever been that one of the things that actually has the power to continue to feed and, and, and really supercharge our faith and our relationship with God and to influence the way that we live our lives isn't actually in the Bible. It actually is the Bible. Now, listen carefully. I don't think we should worship the Bible. The Bible isn't the object of our worship, Okay? Even the Protestant, the dogma of the Protestant Reformation that we know as sola scriptura, which literally means Bible alone, and which basically says that scripture is the supreme authority over the church, doesn't mean that scripture is the only source of influence for the church for, uh, or for the follower of Jesus. And if we're being intellectually honest, like even Martin Luther, who, who pushed this idea forward, didn't actually practice sola scriptura very consistently. Like he continued to believe in purgatory. He continued to believe in infant baptism, which aren't found in the Bible. He rejected like seven books of the Bible, claiming they didn't belong in the canon of scripture at all. So we have to, like, you've got to be intellectually honest. Now, for those of you who've been around church for a long time and you're nervous right now because of some of the things I just said in the last minute, uh, hang with me here because you don't know where I'm going. You're like, okay, let's just, let's be honest. Even sola scriptura, even the idea that scripture alone is our authority on matters of faith and doctrine and practice, sola scriptura doesn't address interpretation at all. And we know that a lot of Scripture is open to interpretation. That's, like, that's why we have all kinds of different denominations. And that's why a lot of us have been in different churches of different denominations and traditions and all kinds of churches within the same denomination because the interpretation and the application of Scripture varies from tradition to tradition. 
And the reformer, reformers believed that the unclear parts of Scripture were to be interpreted in light of its clear parts. So having said all that, I want to talk about the Bible. And specifically, I want to talk about the overarching story of the Bible. The Bible isn't a book. The Bible is a collection of writings. This, it's a collection of writings. The first writings were like something like 1470-something B.C., and the final ones were completed um, in maybe 90 or 95 A.D. These writings were filled with all kinds of stories and teachings and different types of literature, but they tell one story. This collection of writings was written over, by over 40 different writers, most of whom never met. They didn't get in a room and go like, okay, what part do you want to write? What's your specialty? Why oh, you like poetry? You write the poetry parts. And why don't you write about this thing? You're a historian, and you write your thoughts on these big ideas. That, that, that didn't work that way. Forty-something different authors stretching from 1400-something B.C. to nearly 100 A.D., and it's one story. So, like, how could that be? And the story is amazing because there's like murder and intrigue and armies and kings and queens and evil and affairs and true love and heroes and villains and money and rich and poor and power. And any theme that you'd find in your favorite literature or movie, it's in there. And when you string together everything that happens, it tells one incredible story. And the theme is the story of redemption. Redemption means to buy back, it, to pay somebody in order to get something back. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of God. And most importantly for you and for me, it's the story of God that creates the context for your life and for mine. I'm convinced we'll never truly understand what our lives are really about until we understand the context. And the context is God's story. At some point in your life, if this hasn't already uh, happened, um, and for a lot of us it has because we've already hit that age, at some point in everybody's life, you're going to kind of uh, poke your head up over the busyness of life. And, you know, you look around, like you have some kids or you find somebody to have some kids with and you get the kids to school and you get a job and you maybe get another job and then maybe one more job and then you keep a job and then you find a career or you fall into a career and you think about the future and you buy a car and then you find out you got to buy another car, and then you buy a house, and you do the vacations, and you do the youth sports thing, and you, do, you try to get to church some, and all of the busyness of life, at some point, we kind of poke our heads up above it all, and we ask the question, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? What is this about? Like, where is this going? Are, the, are there just like bookends, like you're born and you die, and like, we don't think about that when you're like 21, but at some point in life, you pause just enough to go, is there a purpose to all of this? Is this going anywhere? And you talk to people, and their answers um, usually aren't emotionally satisfying, right? So we just go, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the point is, but what the heck, on with the show. Let's just do the thing that we got to do next and all the 72 things on my to-do list, and we'll try to survive the week, get to the weekend. And we just go back to work, and we try to get a date or try to get another job so we can pay the bills, or we go on vacation so we can get away from it all. And, and then, you know, you're on vacation. You ever had this happen? You're on vacation. You're sitting out in the sun, and the sun sets, and it's just beautiful, and you're overcome with the majesty of your surroundings, and you're pretty sure you've found your purpose. And it's to sit on the beach in a tropical setting 
with an adult beverage in your hand and contemplating deep thoughts. You could get used to this. This must be your purpose. But maybe, honestly, you're still asking, what is this all about? Like, this is nice, but this isn't real life. What is this all about? Is there a greater purpose? Is there a context? Is there is this just going somewhere? Is it just like a circle or what? Like, we just keep going round and round. And I don't think we understand the purpose of our lives until we understand the context and until we understand the story. And it's not even our story, it's God's story. So today, to the best of my ability, I'm going to tell you the story. And if you're not a Christian or you're not that familiar with the Bible, this is a great Sunday for you to be here because I'm going to tell you the whole story of the Bible. We're going to be here a while, but I'm going to go as fast as I can. So, so basically, you, get, you hang in through the duration of this sermon. You don't ever have to come back to church again because we're going to give it all to you right here, the whole thing at one time. <laughs> my goal is not to teach you the whole Bible. <laughs> my goal is at the end of these two minutes together that we would be so overwhelmed with the truth that there really is a story. There's no way some person or some group of people could have manufactured this and pulled it off because the authors never met. They weren't even contemporaries. They stretched out over all of these centuries on a couple different continents and three different languages. And yet here's the story that explains why we're here. It's the context for your life and for mine. And I've come to the conclusion that if we don't really, like we really, really won't understand or get any traction when it comes to understanding the purpose for why we're here until we understand where we fit in this story. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you eight words. Even if you don't usually take notes, I would encourage you to at least write these eight words down today, maybe take pictures of the screen or whatever, save it in your Bible app event, write down these eight words, and if you, or if you have an exceptionally good memory, just lock these away so that later and somebody says, well, what about the Bible? I don't, you can just rattle off these eight words and you can tell them the whole story of the whole Bible. Here we go. First word is the most predictable, and it's the word creation. The Bible starts by telling us how the whole thing got kicked off. And it's an incredible story, and it sounds like a myth, and so a lot of people have a better explanation. And honestly, I'm open to all kinds of ideas about the creation story. It, like, to me, it doesn't matter to me if, if, if you take this story in Genesis literally and believe that the earth is created in six literal 24-hour days or if you believe the story has some gaps between the days, it's, it's poetic literature, the gaps might be hundreds of years or hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Like, I really don't care where you land on the particulars of the story. That's not something I'm going to divide over. Because we, we can real easily get hung up on our differences about particulars and we miss the point. What really matters about the creation story is that God created. Everything you see, everything you can't see, everything we're just now learning about, everything no one has seen yet, all of it created by God. And as amazing as all of creation is, from the grandeur of all the galaxies to the intricacies of over 600 different kinds of beetles, right? As amazing as all of that is, the crowning glory of creation is the human. The only piece of God's creation made in his image, the human. We read about this first family uh, in the story. A couple of very important things happen and a couple of things that we often overlook, and this is huge for the story. The first thing that's important to know is that God put a rule into effect in what we call the Garden of Eden. Not 
612 rules like they were by the time Jesus showed up. Not even 10 rules. He just had one rule. And the reason God put a commandment in the middle of this perfect world was to establish order, to establish authority. It's because without a rule, nobody knows who's in charge. And it's very important to the story that God communicates to humanity, I'm God, you're not. Like, you're good, you're very good, you're not God. You carry my image, but I'm God, you're not. I'm creator, you're the created. So there was a rule, there was a line of authority, and the way God established that was by creating this one rule. When you read about the one rule, it doesn't even seem all that important, because more important than what the rule was, was the fact that God had the authority to establish it. The other thing that's important to this story in this first couple chapters, and what we're calling this first of eight chapters, is that God did something that we often overlook that explains much of what we experience every single day. God said to his new creation, to Adam and Eve, he said, I'm going to take everything I've created in this world, and I'm going to place it under your authority. So now, for the time being, you're in charge of the world. It's yours. I've created it. I'm God, but I'm placing this under your authority. So I will rule over you, and you're going to rule over the world. And as evidence of that, God says, here's what I, where I want you to start. I want you to name the animals. Like, again, can you imagine? Like, where do you start with that? Like, like you, wait, here's the thing. When you give something a name, it's a sign of ownership. And this is, this is so important. We often skip right over this part of the story. So God's saying, I'm God, you're not. I'm creator, you're created. But I'm placing this world, everything I've created, under your authority. And you get that authority from me. So creation. Second chapter of the story, we're going to call brokenness. Brokenness, because by the third chapter of the book of Genesis, sin enters the world. And Adam and Eve butted heads with God over the one rule. And sitting here, you know, all pious in church on a Sunday morning all these years later, we're thinking, you're like, why in the world would we break that one rule? You have one rule. Why would you break the one rule? But the rule wasn't even the issue. The issue was who's going to be God? Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to call the shots? And like, we could look at each other's lives and ask the same question, right? Like, why would you do that? Why, why is it you would go head to head with, with the rules, with the expectations, the standard that God has established? Why is it we go head to head with right and wrong when we know the difference between right and wrong? Why is it that we have so many regrets and baggage and scars? So in the Garden of Eden, the first rule was broken, and when the first rule was broken, brokenness permeated all of creation. And man's relationship with God was broken. Adam and Eve's relationship with each other was broken. Humanity's relationship with all of creation was broken because what Adam and Eve didn't, uh, didn't anticipate was this, that when they, they, when they broke their relationship with God, everything under their authority was broken too. And the third chapter of Genesis explains this, and it's not really a satisfying answer, but it's the answer. The third chapter of Genesis, when everything broke, it explains kind of what drives, much of what drives us crazy about this world. It explains why bad things happen to good people and why sometimes, you know, good things happen to bad people. It explains child abuse and it explains murder and it explains crime and it explains disease and sickness and, and addiction and mental illness and all the things that drive us crazy that we can't make any sense of. Because when those things happen, like who do we blame? Who do we question? We go right to God, right? Because we don't know our own story well enough. 
We don't know the context of our brokenness. And we shake our fists at God, and God's like, hey, I'm just keeping my promise. I placed all of this world's creation under your authority. As you go, so goes creation, so goes the world. And we live in a broken world. And it's still broken. And God's response to all of this is, is unpredictable, and it's totally unexpected, and it's certainly not our natural bent. God turns to the created ones, and He makes a promise. It's chapter 3. He makes a promise. And it's, this is found in Genesis uh, chapter 12. Here's what God does. So God's got this big, broken mess. Everything's broken. There's all this conflict. All of nature's in this like downward spiral. And God decides He's not going to give up on His creation, and He's not going to give up on us. So he reaches down and he chooses a man, and he chooses Abraham. There's nothing that special about Abraham. He just picks this guy and he makes this promise. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Abram, who later becomes Abraham, so we're just going to call him Abraham. The Lord has said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Abraham, almost 3,700 years ago, Somewhere in a desert. We don't even really know where. Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. Now, before today, how many of you have ever heard of Abraham? Maybe, maybe I wasn't clear on that, but <laughs> that's guy I understand. It happened. God fulfilled that part of his promise. He made his name great. This is ancient literature. Like there's a, there's, a, there's a writing in here about a guy, and God supposedly says, I'm going to make your name great. And in 2024, everybody in here has heard of him, whether you want to acknowledge it or not for whatever reason. But there's, <laughs> there's something to this, but it's more than that. Listen to this. Three of the major world religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, we all trace our physical and spiritual roots back to Abraham. His name became great, and that's undeniable because it happened. And here's what God said to him, uh, verse 2. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. What's the next word? And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God made a promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I know this isn't going to make any sense to you now, but a long time from now, I'm going to make you an entire nation. And from that nation, I'm going to bless everybody who ever lives through you. And eventually, Abraham and his wife Sarah finally had a son. That son, Isaac, had some children. And one of those sons, Jacob, had, had 12 sons. And then there was a famine where they lived. And so they all moved to Egypt. And they liked it so much that they just stayed there. And they became this like big family. And they just kept having children and generation after generation after generation. And finally, there were so many people there who could trace their roots back to Abraham. It started to look and feel like a country, like a nation. But they lived in Egypt. So they had no real estate. They had no land of their own. But at the same time, uh, the Pharaoh became concerned that there were too many of them, and these descendants of Abraham, and he became threatened by them. So he decided, I got an idea, let's, because uh, I'm so insecure, let's make them slave labor so they won't overpower us. So they enslaved all the Hebrews, that's what they called the descendants of Abraham. And now it was a nation within a nation, a slave nation, for 400 years. If you've been born in the middle of those 400 years, you would have heard the story of Abraham and you probably would have said, well, I don't believe that. You mean some guy, some 
some guy, old guy out in the desert, and God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Newsflash, we're not a great nation. We're a slave nation. You, you, you could have been born and died in slavery and never would have seen the fulfillment of that prophecy. So I can understand why you'd be cynical, right? Like, my father was a slave. My grandfather was a slave. His father was a slave. I'm a slave. My children are slaves. Their children will be slaves. These are just stories that you tell children so they'll have faith in some God that probably doesn't even exist. They'll have hope in something, you know? But God was writing a story. And one day he appeared not far from there to a man named Moses. And he said, Moses, I've heard my people's cries and I'm going to deliver them. And we're going to have a new chapter. And Moses like, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. What's that got to do with me? And God's like, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And, and Moses is like, that, I, that's not a good plan at all. Because like, I, I can't talk. And God's like, I know that. That's why I chose you. So I think Moses is like, so let me get you this straight. You put on this good show with the bush that's on fire thing and not consume. That's pretty cool. I want to see that again. But you, 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 you want me to go tell the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, that, I, I, um, excuse me, sir, I would like for you to release all of your day laborers and I would like to take them away now. Is that okay with you? I'm just going to go like, I'd like to take all those people who make your country work. I'm going to take them with me now and we're going to leave. Thanks, Pharaoh. Like, God, come on. And God's like, yep, that's pretty much what I want you to do. And Pharaoh's, and Moses is like, there's a, no, that's not going to work. Not a good plan. But not too long after that, all of the enslaved Hebrews in Egypt packed up and followed Moses out of Egypt because God made Abraham a promise and because he was writing the story of redemption. And it brings us to the next chapter in the story, and it's a chapter we're calling Law. Law. Because suddenly we've got a group of people who don't know God. They have no religious tradition. They have no religious writings. All they have are these kind of watered-down stories about a guy named Abraham. So the newly freed Israelites are out in the desert of Sinai, and God says to them, now that I've redeemed you out of slavery, I've brought you out, now that I've shown you that I love you, I want to reveal to you who I am, and he tells the people his name, and he gives them the law, and in the law we discover that God values relationship between him and people, between creator and created. And the people find out what's important to God in terms of how things are done, how things are not done, how we treat other humans, how we treat creation, how we relate to the world around us. And then the amazing thing about this part of the story is that with the law, God makes provision for those who break the law. The assumption being, here's my law. I know you're going to break it. Here's my law. I know you're going to fall short. Here's my law. I know you're a bunch of screw-ups. So here's my law. I know you can't possibly pull it off. Why? Because you're broken. And I've not yet offered the permanent fix. We're working on that. So when a person broke God's law, they had to kill an animal. And by the way, this wasn't new, okay? Uh, that people sacrificed animals long before God took this ancient tradition and connected it to the law. But the death of this animal would not pay for sin. The death of this animal would just cover sin, like, for now. So it's like, here's my law. Good luck with that. And when you break it, because you're going to, here's what you do. The next chapter is rebellion. Because not only did the nation of Israel break God's law over and over again, they abandoned the law completely. And the entire story of this part of the Old Testament is a story of rebellion. 
It's the cycle of rebellion. It's God sending judges and prophets to the nation of Israel and saying, like, whoa, 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 you are so far off track. You've got to come back to God. And the kings and the people are like, no, nah, we want to do life the way that the surrounding nations are doing it, because that's pretty cool. That whole thing worked fine. We were wandering around in the wilderness. We didn't know who we are. We didn't have our own land, you know. But we're an actual nation now with our own land and an army and everything. Like, we don't really need the law or even God that much right now. And this cycle would repeat over and over where godly kings would come to power and return the people to living according to the law and worshiping the one true God, the God of Abraham. And then that king would die and the people would drift into rebellion once again. And it was just this cycle. And finally it got to the point where God had had enough of that. And so he allowed invading armies to come into the land. And the people were scattered all over surrounding nations. And for all practical purposes, Judaism was dead, the nation of Israel was dead, and the promise to Abraham was dead. And again, if you'd been born during these years of captivity, you would have been tempted to say, uh, so uh, what's with all these stories about God's going to make us a great nation? We're not a great nation. It's like, if you notice, here we are again, essentially a slave state. This is the story of our nation. We start off in Egypt, you know, and, then, and now we pay taxes to the Babylonians, or now we pay taxes to the Assyrians, and now we're paying taxes to the Persians, or now we're paying taxes and we're oppressed by the Romans. It's just, we're not a great nation. Like, we are a nation that is subservient to the nations around us. So, like, obviously, all these myths and all these legends about Abraham and God's going to bless everybody through Israel, like, that was a fairy tale, right, that we just told our kids. I mean, why would I believe that? Why should I believe that God is good and God can be trusted? Why should I believe in God at all? But on the other side of that, we know, like, we know that God is a God who keeps his promise. And even though it seemed like God was silent, God was not still. Even though it seemed like he was absent, he was in fact very active because he's writing this story of redemption. The last prophet that spoke to Israel was a prophet named Malachi. And from Malachi to the New Testament, uh, there are about 400 years where God apparently said nothing, or at least nothing that anybody recorded. And the Jewish people must have wondered if there was anything to this story of God's promise to Abraham. But then 400 years after the last prophet spoke to the nation, a new prophet walks onto the scene, and this guy is a character. His name is John. He has a nickname, John the Baptizer. And here's what he said in the Gospel of John, different John. John chapter 1, verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. It says he himself was not the light. So John the Baptist was a prophet. And his job was to say, okay, uh, hey, you haven't heard from God in a while, but, it, but it's time. Like God is speaking again, and God is about to do what God has promised to do. He, he's about to do what he promised Abraham he was going to do. He's about to address the brokenness. He's about to do something about our sin issue. God's about to do something about the distance between us and him. He's about to reveal to the world the once and for all final sacrifice says he came only as a witness to the light. So John himself was not the light. Check this out. The true light that gives light to what's the next word? Everyone was coming into the world. Seems like we've heard this before. Everyone. The true light that gives light to everyone, as in Abraham, 
all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Verse 14 of John 1. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I've just decided to call this chapter of God and the story of redemption, we're just calling it grace. It's like I want to introduce, I think Jesus is saying to us, I want to introduce something into the story that's been here all along, but you might have missed it. I want to highlight something that's been a part of the story, but you have missed it. It's grace. All along, God has given you what you don't deserve. All along, God has refused to give you what you do deserve. All along, He has made provision for when you fail. And instead of stamping out the human race, when the human race broke everything, God instead made a promise, that's grace. When God gave the law and gave provision for people who broke the law, that's grace. When God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt, that's grace. And throughout the whole story, the underpinnings of the whole story is God's grace. And Jesus shows up and says, in case you missed it, it's about the grace of God, not the law of God. It's, about, it's not about God paying you back. It's about God bringing you back. And then Jesus said things that no one had ever, had ever said before. He made it very clear that I'm not just here for Israel. I'm here for everybody. And at the end of his life, he said to his oldest, uh, to his closest followers, he said, now this whole time, you may have thought this is about Israel. Listen, you may have thought that when God said to Abraham, all nations, he just meant all Jewish people. But let me make it clear. He's like, I want you, I want, you ready for this? I want you to go into all the world, all the world and make disciples because God, listen, has fulfilled his promise to Abraham. The next chapter I'm calling Spirit. After Jesus' death and resurrection, and he ascended to the Father, and the Holy Spirit came down, we find this in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and all these people who believed in Jesus, and from that day forward, any time a person who placed their faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them. He doesn't just live with us, he lives in us. And for generations, for a couple thousand years now, since the time of Christ, the Holy Spirit has been filling people who are surrendered to him, to tweak our conscience, to nudge us to act, to renew our minds, to reflect the mind of Christ, to see the world the way that God sees the world, to respond to other people as Jesus would respond, to address our brokenness so that we can live in this world that's still broken but live unbroken lives, to live in sharp contrast to the brokenness all around us so that the fruit of the Spirit can be manifest in our lives. This is our chapter. This is the chapter we're living in. The chapter launched by grace, the chapter that's described and underscored by the Holy Spirit that lives inside of anyone who places their faith in Christ. This is our chapter, but it's not the final chapter. The final chapter of the story I'm just calling eternity. I want to tell you the final chapter. I want, I want to read some verses, and if you find yourself like, I don't know if I believe that. I understand it. I get it. Um, you know, again, it, tells, it sounds like something you just tell people so they, you know, live good moral lives, or it sounds like something you tell people so that they, you try to get them to be good, or it sounds like something you tell people to give them something to hope in when there's not a lot to be hopeful about. Listen to this, Revelation chapter 21. And given everything we know about the story so far, listen to this and decide for yourself if God has proven himself to be worthy of our trust. Revelation 21 verse 1. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there's no longer any sea. It just means there's no longer any division. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And check this out. This next part is what you've prayed for. This next part is what you've known intuitively needed to happen. This next part addresses your greatest concerns, your greatest fears, the trauma that you've experienced, the anger, the fear. This next part is what you've known instinctively needed to happen in order to live a life that is whole and unbroken, but you couldn't get God to do it. (laughs) Listen to this, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. Listen, for the old order of things, the broken world, the brokenness that allowed sin to permeate every part of creation, the old order of things has passed away. Verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, if you hear that and you're like, you know, things coming down out of heaven, that kind of stuff, it's just really hard for me to believe. I get it. It was hard for Abraham to believe that one day his family would be a nation and that, not just a nation, but a great nation, right? It's hard for Moses to believe, like, so let me get this straight. You just want me to just go into Egypt, go up to Pharaoh and say, take me my people now, and he's just going to be okay with that. Like, how hard do you think it was for a teenage girl named Mary when an angel appeared and said, you're pregnant and your son is going to be named Emmanuel. He is the son of God, and he's going to save his people from their sin. But she believed it. This is the context of your life and mine. It's the story we're living in. It's God's story. It's a story of redemption, which means it's your story because you are the redeemed. Creation, brokenness, promise, law, rebellion, grace, spirit, eternity. See, when we understand the story. We understand why millions and millions of people all over the world in many different languages and cultures under many, many different circumstances, you begin to understand why so many people just kind of get up and approach every day. They would get on our knees and just say, Jesus, yes. Yes. I surrender to your will today. I surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life today. Because if this is the story and we believe it, like what else can we do? Like surrender, <laughs> surrender to an invisible God makes no sense until you know the story. But once you know the story, what else can you do? When you know the story, and you underst- then you understand the reasonableness, right? You understand the reasonableness of Jesus' invitation to follow him. And if that's the story, and if we really believe it's true, is there a more appropriate response than to just get on our knees and say yes? Perhaps your hesitation to surrender to the call of Jesus is maybe you just didn't really know the story. And now you do. So listen, I don't, I don't worship the Bible. I don't think the Bible should be the object of our worship, but I love it. <laughs> it's so compelling because of the story, the story of God, the story of us. Like, think about that. I'm included. You're included. So what else can we do but to throw up our hands and surrender, to say yes to the God who has and will keep his promise? Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, the truth of this story, the, the, the story of this whole scripture, the story of God, the story of us, it's, it's truly uh, overwhelming. And for those today who maybe for the first time have seen the whole thing, I pray that they would respond to the call of Jesus. I pray that they would surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives to bring them into the likeness of Jesus. For those today who may be struggling, maybe facing down some sickness or loss or maybe living a story of abuse and confusion or trauma or broken, just brokenness. Give us the courage to cling to your promise that you have not abandoned us. That you're the God who has promised that one day you will dry the tears from our eyes. You will eradicate sin, sorrow, and death because you're going to make all things new. And you're going to honor your promise because that's the kind of God that you are, not because we deserve it, but because you promised it. Give us eyes to see that, the perspective to see our place in the story and the courage to follow and to live lives of surrender. We pray all this in Jesus' name.